Hello and welcome to the eighth episode in our series of Commercial Litigation Update podcasts. My name is Anna Pretoldi and I'm the partner responsible for litigation know-how here at Herbert Smith Freehills. Joining me for this podcast are Maura McIntosh, who is a professional support consultant in the litigation team, and Gayatri Gagoy, who's an associate in the disputes team. In this edition, I will give a brief update on developments relating to jurisdiction and the enforcement of judgments post-Brexit and on disclosure. Then Maura will look at recent cases on witness evidence, the without prejudice rule, and when the courts will hand down judgment despite the parties having agreed a settlement. And finally, Gayatri will look at some of the very few English cases to date which consider frustration and force majeure in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. So first, uh, Brexit. As many listeners will be aware, unless proceedings were started before the end of 2020, the rules on jurisdiction and enforcement under the RECAS Brussels Regulation and the Lugana Convention no longer apply to the UK. The UK has applied to re-accede to Lugano, but it needs the unanimous consent of contracting parties, including the EU. And the European Commission has recently recommended that the UK's application should be rejected. That's not necessarily the final word, as it's up to the Council of Member States, not the Commission, but it's obviously not a positive sign. If the UK can't rejoin Lugano, Questions of jurisdiction and enforcement of judgments between the UK and EU will depend in part on whether there's an exclusive jurisdiction clause in favour of a UK or EU court, which falls within the 2005 Hague Convention on Choice of Court Agreements, which was entered into after the convention came into force for the country of the, the chosen court. There are some wrinkles around that question when it comes to the UK, which we've spoken about before, and there's some more information on that in in the posts linked from the podcast page. If Hague doesn't apply, and assuming, of course, we don't have Lugano, then questions of jurisdiction and enforcement will be a matter for the common law rules in England or the relevant national laws in each of the EU member states. The other point I wanted to cover in relation to Brexit is a new rule that took effect from 6th April, and that's that CPR 633-2B, which mitigates to some extent the need to apply for the court's permission to serve a claim on a defendant out of the jurisdiction now that Recast Brussels and Lugano no longer apply. What it means is that you won't need permission to serve out where there's a a jurisdiction clause in favour of the English court, whether it's exclusive or non-exclusive, and whether or not it falls within the Hague Convention. But in most other cases, you will need permission, which means making an ex parte application without notice application, and being subject to a, a duty of full and frank disclosure, including points going to the merits of your case, which... It's never a particularly comfortable situation to be in. Moving on now to disclosure. Certain amendments to the disclosure pilot rules at PD51U came into force on 6th April. Uh, We've discussed them a a few times in this podcast uh, series. and they, They clarify such things as the timing of the obligation to disclose 
known adverse documents and the circumstances in which document preservation notices need to be sent to former employees. We understand the working group is going to propose further amendments, for example, to provide more guidance in relation to Model C, so request-based disclosure and the list of issues, and potentially some adjustments to streamline the process. Although perhaps not going as far as, as we as a firm have suggested or wanted, we'll just have to see what's proposed and ultimately whether the pilot is extended beyond the end of this year or perhaps made permanent at that point. I think on any basis it's clear it's not just going to go away. The last thing I want to mention is a recent case that looked at when a third party's documents are considered to be in a party's control so as to fall within their disclosure obligations. That's the Barclay Square Holdings and uh, Lancer Property Asset Management case. It's the latest in a line of first instance decisions which have found that it's sufficient if there's an arrangement or understanding which means the documents are within the party's practical control, even though the party doesn't have a presently enforceable legal right to obtain the documents. The case is particularly interesting in finding that this principle applies regardless of the nature of the relationship with the third party. So in this case, the court found that a party had control over its parent company's documents whereas in previous cases, the relationship was generally the other way around. Whether or not there is such an arrangement is a question of fact in each case, but there's clearly a risk that the court might infer the existence of a control arrangement of this sort, where a party has previously had access to a third party's documents for the purpose of the proceedings, but then later tries to argue that the documents aren't in fact in their control. So that may well be something to weigh up when considering whether to to seek access in the first place. So I'll hand over now to Maura. Thanks, Anna. I'll start off with a recent decision which considers, although slightly obliquely, the new rules on trial witness statements in the business and property courts, which apply to statements signed since the 6th of April. Now, one of the new rules is that the statement has to identify the documents that the witness has referred to or has been referred to for the purpose of providing the evidence set out in the statement. The aim is transparency so that the court will know the extent to which the witness's recollection may have been influenced by going through the documents. And I think the assumption underlying this new rule is that evidence is of better quality if it's spontaneous though uh, the rules recognise that it is permissible to show a witness documents they saw at the time of the relevant events if needed to refresh their memory. The new rules do, however, strongly discourage showing a witness documents that they didn't see at the time, which is perhaps unsurprising. But the Commercial Court's decision in a recent case called Global Display Solutions and NCR Financial Solutions is I think very interesting because the judge clearly didn't see the idea of witnesses refreshing their memories from documents as a bad thing, at least where that was by reference to documents that they had seen at the time. Now, an important issue in the case was when the defendants had started to give the claimants false forecasts for the products that the claimants were supplying. It was accepted by the defendants that false forecasts were given for some period, but there was a dispute about when that period had started. And the judge 
concluded that the false forecasts had been given for the whole of the period alleged by the claimant. And his conclusion on this point was reinforced because he said there had been no clear evidence from any of the defendant's witnesses which stated when the forecast became false. Um, He said that the defendant's counsel had sought to make a virtue of the fact that the witnesses were giving their best recollection of events by searching through their memories rather than looking through the contemporaneous documents and, and trying to reconstruct what had happened. But the judge said there was no reason at all why the witnesses should not have looked carefully at the contemporaneous documentation before they gave their evidence on this question. Now, the new rules on witness evidence didn't actually apply in this case because the statements had been signed before the 6th of April. But the judge said that even under the new rules, it remains permissible for witnesses to refresh their memory from contemporaneous documents. And he said that the fact that these witnesses hadn't done that meant that their evidence was far less likely to be reliable than it might otherwise have been. So I think that shows the careful decisions that need to be taken in weighing up um, the advantages and disadvantages of, of showing witnesses contemporaneous documents to refresh their memories or having them give their evidence cold. And of course, that balance will depend on the, the facts of each case. So the second case I want to mention is a, a decision on without prejudice or, or WP privilege, which is another decision in the Berkeley Square case that Anna mentioned a few minutes ago. This decision considers a so-called fraud exception to the WP rule, which is normally said to apply where a party wants to rely on WP material to set aside a settlement agreement on the grounds of misrepresentation, fraud or undue influence. But in this case, the Court of Appeal held that the exception is, is not limited to where a party's alleging fraud. It will apply equally in the opposite situation if a party wants to rely on the WP material to rebut an allegation that an opponent is making that the agreement is is invalid, whether that's on grounds of misrepresentation, fraud, or undue influence, or, or similar grounds. So essentially, this shows that the fraud exception to the WP rule is wider than might have been thought previously. And finally, for me, a quick mention of the judgment in Berrawalla and Woodstone Properties, in which the court had to consider whether or not to hand down judgment where the parties had reached settlement after the draft judgment was circulated on the condition that the judge agreed not to hand down the judgment. So the bottom line is that in this situation, the court will weigh up the private interests of the parties and their wish to avoid judgment being handed down against any public interest in handing down the judgment, such as whether the case raises a a point of law of general interest or some wrongdoing which should be exposed in which case you're probably unlikely to be able to prevent hand-down. It's clear from the decision that the fact that a draft judgment has been circulated before the settlement was reached is itself a relevant factor, so the chances of persuading the court not to hand down the judgment are are likely to be much greater if you settle before that point. Though, of course, it, it may be that it's seeing the draft judgment that has made one of the parties particularly keen to settle. And also, do remember that in any case where judgment has been reserved, the parties have a duty to inform the court immediately if they become aware of any development which may make it unnecessary for judgment to be delivered. Uh, Judges tend to be rather unhappy if they've spent the weekend writing their judgment only to be told immediately after they circulate the draft that the parties have agreed a settlement. Thanks, Maura. 
I'll now hand over to Gayatri to look at frustration and force majeure. Thanks, Anna. The question of when a party can suspend or avoid their obligations under a contract, where there is an unexpected turn of events, has gained particular prominence in recent years, initially in anticipation of Brexit, and more recently in light of the widespread disruption to commercial affairs caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. We're now starting to see a few decisions coming through where the parties have tried to rely on the pandemic, or related restrictions, to argue that a contract has been frustrated, or that a force majeure clause applies. I'll start with two cases relating to frustration, which is of course a common law doctrine which brings a contract to an end if an event occurs, which is not due to the fault of either party, and which renders further performance impossible or illegal, or makes relevant obligations radically different from those contemplated by the parties at the time of contracting. In the first of the recent cases, Salam Air and Latam Airlines Group, airline which operated domestic flights within Oman, argued that its aircraft leases had been frustrated by the imposition of COVID-related travel restrictions. The point was argued in the context of an application to injunct the lessor from making a demand under standby letters of credit, which had been provided in lieu of a deposit of three months' rent. The court dismissed the injunction application for a number of reasons, including that the case on frustration was not strong enough to justify interfering with the operation of the letters of credit. What was argued here was frustration of a shared purpose underlying the aircraft leases, but the court said there was nothing to suggest that the claimant's use of the aircrafts was a shared purpose, as opposed to the claimant's own purpose. The frustration argument was also inconsistent with the terms of leases that made it clear the claimant's obligation to pay rent continued in almost any conceivable circumstance. The other case, BNY Mellon and Cine UK, was decided on an application for summary judgment for payments of rents due on commercial premises in the UK since the outbreak of the pandemic. One of the tenants had argued that their lease was frustrated altogether, but that dispute had since settled. The remaining tenants argued that their leases were temporarily frustrated during the periods when they were prevented from opening for business as a result of pandemic and related restrictions. The court rejected the frustration arguments, finding, perhaps unsurprisingly, that there's no such thing as temporary frustration. It's well established that the effect of frustration is to bring a contract to an end. It doesn't spring back to life if the disruption subsides. The decision is perhaps more interesting for the court's comments as to why it was also clear that an argument that the leases were frustrated altogether wouldn't succeed. The master accepted that an enforced closure due to the pandemic and related restrictions could result in frustration. But the problem here was that the anticipated closures were only around 18 months at the most. In the context of leases of 15 years or more, and where each of the leases would still have more than a year to run after the disruption had ended. So that shows how high the bar is set to establish frustration. But of course, it doesn't rule out the possibility of a, of a successful claim to frustration arising out of the pandemic in appropriate circumstances. And finally, just a mention of a recent case which has considered the operation of a force majeure clause in the COVID context, Dwyer UK Franchising and Fred Bar. Force majeure unlike frustration, is purely a creature of contract under English law. The clause here, in a franchise agreement relating to a plumbing business, said the agreements would be suspended, and I quote, during any period that either of the parties is prevented or hindered from complying with their respective obligations by any cause which, which the franchisor designates as a force majeure. And the clause then gave a non-exhaustive list of examples. This is rather unusual in giving the franchise order the power to designate whether a particular event or circumstance did or did not amount to force majeure. 
And the question that was actually determined by the court was whether the franchisor was in breach of a duty, the so-called Braganza duty, not to exercise that power arbitrarily, capriciously or irrationally. The court held that the franchisor was in fact in breach of that duty in refusing to designate a force majeure in the circumstances. The franchisor had refused on the basis that a drop in turnover caused by the pandemic wasn't sufficient to amount to force majeure, but had failed to take into account of the fact that the franchisee had to self-isolate for 12 weeks due to his son being in a vulnerable category for COVID purposes. That was a critical factor which had been ignored. On the facts, although a breach would have allowed the franchisee to terminate, the agreement was subsequently affirmed. But the interesting point, though again, probably not surprising, is that the case suggests that COVID, or circumstances associated with it, may well amount to a force majeure event, though as ever with force majeure, it will all depend on the terms of the clause and the circumstances of the case. Well, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you to Maura and to Gayatri and to all of you for listening.